it wasn't until later that I sort of had some concerns about the book that are the result of my Sherlock Holmes investigations. You know, was it a better time? No. They didn't think there was anything wrong with depriving women of the vote or treating people of color badly, etc. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Callback Yesterday, the only podcast named Callback Yesterday that's about somewhere in time. I'm John Raby, and first, please forgive me for being so late with this podcast. I posted like six episodes at once last time for everybody at the Somewhere in Time weekend on Mackinac Island, and I figured you'd want a break, but a month is really too long. And again, I'm sorry. Speaking of the weekend, coming up this time, I'll check in with Steve Ellis, who organizes the event. He'll give us a report. He'll tell us what it was like having a convention during a pandemic. And I'll also get his reaction to an insanely brilliant Somewhere in Time tie-in. I'll tell you what, I'll invite you to come next year and you can chair that, that presentation. But first... You know what a Venn diagram is, right? You have one circle that represents everybody who, I don't know, everybody who likes peanut butter. And then another circle over here that represents everybody who, everybody who likes chocolate. Those circles overlap, and the size of the overlap includes everyone who likes Reese's peanut butter cups, okay? You got peanut butter on my chocolate. Well, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. Okay, so picture this. In one circle, we've got fans of Somewhere in Time. And in another, fans of Sherlock Holmes. I might be wrong, but I think the overlap between the two is bigger than the peanut butter chocolate overlap. There's a real natural kinship between the two groups. Hey, you got your Deerstalker in my pocket watch. Well, you got your pocket watch in my Deerstalker. And so to explore that intersection, I'm talking today with somebody who is an eminent Sherlockian and a big fan of Somewhere in Time. His name is Les Klinger. He's a member of the Baker Street Irregulars, which is the preeminent American Sherlock Holmes group to which my dad belonged. His claim to fame is his annotation of all the Sherlock Holmes stories, as well as annotating Lovecraft, Dracula, and the Sandman and Watchmen stories. And in a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, Les is also one of the few people to beat the rapacious Doyle estate. And as I said, he is also a big fan of Somewhere in Time. Les Klinger, welcome to the show. My pleasure, John. You know, we have known each other for a long time now, but we almost met earlier, and that was because I uh, I was doing live interviews on the radio with an author that we won't name whose name is T.V. And I was at the LA Times Festival of Books. And he was on drugs or something. And he was horrible. He was absolutely horrible. And there was a thought in the back of my mind, you know, Les Klinger is sitting there signing copies of his annotated Sherlock Holmes. I know all the questions I'd want to ask him. We should just send for him right now. And and I'd be over with this nightmare of an interview. (laughs) And I didn't. Well, you know, the opportunity's lost. The road's not taken. The main reason you're on today on this show is because you are a fan of both the book Bid Time Return and the movie Somewhere in Time. Yes. And you're an expert on many things. You're not an expert on Somewhere in Time or Bid Time Return, but a fan. How does one get to be an expert? I haven't written a book about it, so therefore I'm not an expert. That's how you get to be an expert. Um, And I've been a a fan of Richard Matheson's for a long, long time. I I remember reading um, I I Am Legend 
many, many years ago and, uh, and got to come back and appreciate that book in particular. I was the chair of a jury that was awarding the Vampire Novel of the Century Award. Had to be a post-Dracula novel. And uh, after a lot of discussion, um, we selected I Am Legend um, as really the game-changing book that it was. I mean, it just, nobody had ever imagined vampires the way that Matheson had. And, and Richard was so smart, he, he added this twist that the, that if, I hope I have this right, it's been a while since I've read it, but the twist is that the vampires have to destroy the non-vampire because, in the same way because vampires are in the majority yes. in the same way that we have to we have to destroy vampires because they're in the minority in our in our normal world yes and uh, i don't know that they have to destroy him but he's a he's a menace uh, he is determined to try and uh, kill as many vampires as he can uh, the character later played by Charlton Heston in the Omega Man later by Will Smith i'm a survivor living in New York City also, Vincent Price, in a great Italian production called The Last Man on Earth. December 1965. Is that all it has been since I inherited the world? Only three years. It seems like a hundred million. So, a novel that has had the, uh, uh, been filmed three times, uh, each time with a different title. No, one more. One more that you've never seen that's absolutely horrible. It's it's one of those knockoff productions, and it starred, I believe, he's the Japanese host of Iron Chef. Uh huh. You're right. I haven't seen that. Awful. <laughs> In any event, um, no, I I love when I was a kid. Um, all I read was science fiction. Uh, I, some of the earliest things that I read were books like uh, Asimov's uh, uh, Juveniles, Heinlein's Juveniles. And then I graduated very quickly. I mean, probably by the age of 9 or 10, I was reading adult science fiction. I probably didn't understand most of it, but I was reading it. And it wasn't until I went to law school that I discovered uh, mystery fiction at all. Um, I had read science fiction, science fiction, science fiction. That was my recreational reading. So lots of time travel books, including, of course, Asimov's End of Eternity, uh, one of the more famous ones. And uh, uh, somewhere along the way, read Bedtime Return. What was it about the, the science fiction books that you dug? I think it was just the brain stretching. Um, it seemed to me to be um, sort of great exercise. I, I wasn't uh, a, a person who was particularly interested in physical activities, although both my parents were athletes. I was a great disappointment to them because my exercise consisted mainly of lifting books. But uh, I, I just loved exploring all these different worlds, um, worlds that were totally different from ours, or maybe just slightly different, but different. And the imagination parts of it really appealed to me. What about the time travel aspect? Well, time travel was always intriguing. It, it seemed to be not very practical. I mean, mostly sort of bad things happened with time travel in many of the books, um, or that there were there were certainly hazards. Uh, so you have stories like Elspreg de Camp's uh, 
to hunt a dinosaur. I forgot the name of the story, but it was a story about a time traveler goes back to hunt a dinosaur and steps on a leaf, and the butterfly effect changes the world. But he also wrote Lest Darkness Fall, a terrific little novelette where he goes back and stops the Dark Ages from happening. Yes, and you know, and and I love um, things like uh, one of my favorite Stephen King novels is Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, which is essentially a time travel novel. Uh, without spoiling the plot, it's about a man who discovers a a one a wormhole, a, a connection between the present time and nineteen sixty nineteen fifty eight or something like that, where he can walk through this hole find himself in 1958, and he realizes that he has the opportunity to change history by stopping the Kennedy assassination um, and decides to do that. You know, those kinds of ideas have always fascinated me. As an escape or just a mind bender or... I think as, yeah, as a what if, as a what if we could do this, what if we could change that, um, fix that, Etc. One of my favorite shows that I used to watch all the time with my kids was a show called Voyagers about time travelers whose job it was to go back in time and correct historical events that for, were accidentally off track. Newton sat in the wrong place. The apple didn't fall on his head, you know, so they had to get him under the right tree and so on. It was very clever, and it always ended up with a wonderful line at the end of the show in the credits that said, take a voyage on down to your public library, and you can read the following books to learn more about these characters. Oh, so if, in the words of the... Uh Unfortunately, not late, great uh, Bill Cosby. If you're not careful, you just might learn something. <laughs> when did you read Bedtime Return? Do you remember? No, probably, probably sometime in high school, maybe or maybe later. Did but, it seem, uh, like, were you a romantic kid? Did it seem, I'm asking, did it seem, how did it strike you? To me, it would have seemed ridiculous because I'd never had love or loss in my life. Now it seems wonderful. I remember it being affecting, so it must have been in college when I was reading sort of mature things by then, um, and could under, and and of course had already been in love. And uh, by the time I was in college, I was in love with my first wife, um, who I married after college and stayed married to for twenty years. Uh, so yeah, I got those things. Uh, I understood those elements. It, it wasn't until later that I sort of had some concerns about the book that are that are the result of my Sherlock Holmes investigations, which have to do with sort of the unreality of it, um, the, the gloss of nostalgia on uh, prior ages. I mean, the book takes place in the late 1890s. Uh, the film takes place 20 years later, I think, or sort of 15 plus, almost 20 years later, 1910 or so. And... Um, you know, we have a distorted picture of what those ages were like, uh, especially the Victorian period. Um, we have a distorted nostalgia for it that says, oh, it was so wonderful with gas lamps and all that sort of thing, forgetting, of course, that London, for example, was an extremely odorous town. Odorous. The smell of horse Manure was everywhere. You know, plumbing wasn't great. And it was a terrible time to be a woman, to be a person of color. By 1910, 
it wasn't a whole lot different. It was somewhat different. There were some modern conveniences. But uh, one of the things that struck me about uh, the book and sort of thinking about it now is that I'm not sure that uh, had the hero gotten his wish and he had uh, married the heroine that they would have had much to talk about. There's no real indications that she is in any way a particularly modern woman. A lot of Victorian and early Edwardian women were pretty repressed and uh, politically uninterested. Um, then of course, they didn't have the vote. And I think he would have found those things to be a, a great shock and a surprise. Plus, again, if he wasn't going to turn out... Now, she had money in the book, and so they might have been okay financially. But other than that, what skills would he have had to get along? And um, I think he would have been disappointed that, with the absence of all the modern amenities that we just take for granted. But uh, Matheson didn't explore those things. Uh, and that's okay. I, I love the idea, though, of a part two where it's like two years later and they're at the breakfast table and it's like out of Citizen Kane. Where he's like, you know, he's just trying to escape this wife. If I could go back in time or wait, go forward in time. And he already knows what all the news is going to be, so he doesn't even want to read the newspapers. You know, there are time travel books that have um, tried to immerse themselves in the realities of the period and show it show that the particular period um, for all the horrors and shocks um, that we would occur if we had that kind of thing. And that's not what Matheson wanted to do, and that's okay. But to compare it, for example, I mean, one of my very favorite time travel books is The Doomsday Book by Connie Willis, in which, and, and it actually turns out to be a series that she's created. There are three four novels in it. The second one is called To Say Nothing of the Dog. Um, the third and fourth, um, I've forgotten their exact titles, but they're about the Blitz. And they're basically about a team of Oxford historians who use a machine uh, to go back in time to study, to study history. Uh, in the case of the Doomsday Book, it's a mistake. She ends up in the middle of the Black Plague and it's devastating. I mean, it makes our modern pandemic look like uh, a common cold, you know. I mean, she's 90% of the village that she's in dies. She's been inoculated uh, because just in case uh, she's been inoculated for a lot of diseases. But she has to deal with that she's stuck there. She can't get back to the present. And she has to live with the 15th century. Um, and similarly, in, in uh, the, the two books about the Blitz, um, historians find themselves trapped in um, the Blitz. And um, they do have some advanced knowledge. They have knowledge of where the bombs are going to drop. And so they can probably stay alive, but they can't do much to help. And, and that's the interesting um, uh, issue in, in both of those books is the the powerlessness to do something in the middle of these terrible catastrophes. I once asked Alan First, who who writes the uh, the wonderful spy thrillers set in the 1930s and 40s, and mostly in Eastern Europe, also in Paris, um, and sometimes in the United States, if he wished he had a time machine and could time travel. And he said, he looked at me like I was an idiot. He's like, I have a time machine. It's what I do. This is how I travel in time. It works. And of course, he's right. Uh, do you consider your, your delving into the past, resurrecting uh, 
now unknown authors and annotating well-known authors. Do you consider that time travel? Yeah, I guess I should. I mean, in a sense, I, I, I try to immerse myself in the period. I can't really get my head into it. I mean, it's not that kind of immersion. But I am surrounding myself with reference materials that so that I, I can understand things. I mean, I have an 1888 Britannica. I have a 1910 Britannica. I have travel guides from the relevant time periods and countries, catalogs, shopping catalogs, and photographs and the like. Um, because to me, when you read books, I mean, I guess I agree with Mr. First, that um, great books are a mirror of the or should be a, a a mirror of the time period that they're writing about, and this is true, by the way, of contemporary books. I mean, when I say contemporary, books that are written about the time in which they're written. Um, Jacqueline Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls uh, is is a uh, is a fine mirror of the 1970s, and that's what I love about annotating. It's sort of looking deeply into that mirror and pointing out the details that uh, the reader might miss that enrich the experience of that era. Can you see on the screen my my uh, office here? Yes. That's my archive of tapes and my dad's archive of tapes. And then I don't know if you can see that that dark row of books on the bottom there. Yes. Those are 1911 Britannicas. Okay, 1911. I don't think that's accurate. Um there was a 1910, which was the 11th edition. 11th edition. I just picked 11th one up. 11th edition. Yes. I have the same set, except it's mine is got sort of red covers. Are they, um, are they, is it the small ones or the big ones? Small ones. Here, yeah. I'll show you one. <laughs> Showing each other. No, this is from, well, it was printed in 1911. At least the, uh, the, the date on here is, well, those are nice too. The date on here is 1911, but it is the 11th edition. Um... My dad stole these from the University of Detroit Library. Oh, no, this does say 1911. Uh, interesting. So the, the I, I always misquote it. I've been say, although, actually, it does say, I'm sorry, there's a table at the front, and it says the ninth edition was published 1875 to 1889. Right. The 11th edition was 1910 to 1911. Um and those are, I mean, these are two of the great editions. The 10th was kind of forgettable. It didn't have much new material. It just had the, it was the ninth edition plus supplementary volumes. So the 10th, forget about the 10th. Uh, the 9th and 11th were very significant. Wait till you get to SAI to SHU. It's riveting. <laughs> and now the exciting conclusion, Zoo. But the Britannica is great for discoveries. One of my one of my great um, serendipitous discoveries was in reading about Thomas Watson. Sir Thomas Watson was one of the great medical educators of the nineteenth century, and there's no doubt that uh, that Arthur Conan Doyle would have had his masterful book on medical treatments, and and perhaps had even heard him lecture. And as I'm reading this biography of Sir Thomas Watson a line sort of jumped off the page about Watson talking about a patient who had gout so badly that he could chalk a billiard cue with his knuckles. What? And this is a line from, I've forgotten which story, this is a line, I think, from The Missing Three-Quarter. Hi, John Raby here, breaking in. 
because this is a, a plum opportunity, one that no Sherlockian would ever turn down, and that is to read from the canon. It is indeed from The Missing Three Quarter, which is one of the poorer Holmes stories, not one that I would recommend if you are starting off on a, a, a journey through the canon. Anyway, Godfrey is an orphan, and Lord Mount James is his nearest relative, his, his uncle, I believe. Indeed, this throws new light upon the matter. Lord Mount James is one of the richest men in England. So I've heard Godfrey say. And your friend was closely related? Yes, he was his heir. And the old boy is nearly eighty, cramful of gout, too. They say he could chalk his billiard cue with his knuckles. Now, back to our interview. Doyle stole from a lecture by Sir Thomas Watson. I mean, he what just he had, took the, so there was some sort of chalky substance because of the gout. Well, yes, yes. When you when you develop gout, you develop a, a chalk like substance in your in your joints, and it's very painful. And I never would have. I mean, it's just serendipity of going through the encyclopedia. It's it's a little bit like, let's say you you know you go back to, whatever you go back to Detroit in nineteen. 19- 21, I'm just picking something in, in a time, uh, and you have an idea that you want to find out something. Let's say I want to go back and, and uh, meet my dad when he was just born. I'm going to do that. I'm going to see that, but I'm also going to experience a whole bunch of different things from 1921 that I never expected. In a way, it's like looking in the encyclopedia or looking into an old card catalog. Absolutely. You see all the different things, all the digressions, and you learn something brand new. Or many things brand new. Right, which is what I love about annotating. I mean, it's for me, it's always about the byways, the strange paths that you end up sort of finding yourself going down as this reference leads to that reference leads to that reference. And it's like, whoa, I didn't know that stuff. We're going to pause my interview now with uh, Les Klinger, the noted Sherlockian, and uh, bring into the conversation Steve Ellis, who's the guy who organizes the Somewhere in Time weekend every year, uh, which happened in the middle of October. I know I'm late on getting this report, Steve, but welcome to uh, Call Back Yesterday. Hi, John. Uh, Steve has taken a break from raking leaves at his home in Michigan, so I really appreciate that uh, that you... <laughs> You broke away from everybody's favorite <laughs> occupation in the Midwest. That's right. It was a welcome diversion. Yeah. Um, I, I'm really sorry that I'm so late in putting together this next podcast, but I really wanted to find out how the weekend went. John, I think all things considered, the weekend went really well. Um, we uh, did practice social distancing. We did encourage all of our guests uh, to wear masks when they were indoors. Uh, and everybody played along with us very well. We didn't have any incidents. How many people did you wind up having? How many people do you usually have? We generally have uh, between 700, 750. And this year, because of the uh, limitations that were placed uh, in the state of Michigan on uh, indoor gatherings, we were at about somewhere around 400. And it kind of sucks a little bit because this was the 30th anniversary, right, of the of the weekend and the 40th anniversary of the film. I guess we're going to be, uh, we'll, we'll celebrate 31 and 41 next year. and We'll make that a big deal. One of the things that struck me, and I, I was interested in finding out, is that, you know, the uh, around 1912, which is the, you know, when, when the movie was set, 
uh, just uh, seven years later, they did indeed have a pandemic, the Spanish flu, and people wore masks. So I'm wondering if if the participants in the Somewhere in Time weekend did kind of, uh, I don't mean to put this lightly, it's a very serious matter, but did they do masks that were appropriate to the era in which they're they're dressing? You know, like 1919-type masks. Yeah, John, that's really funny that you would say that because actually uh, one of the presenters that uh, I've invited uh, several times over the course of the last uh, several years, uh, Dee Birch. Dee is a hairstylist uh, and a costume designer, and she's kind of an expert on antique costumes. And, and what she did this year was talk specifically about that, about, uh, you know, date-appropriate masking and, and had some uh, examples of masks that uh, people would have worn during the uh, the Spanish flu epidemic. And um, yeah, I mean, it, people, people kind of got into it. I mean, like I said, we encouraged everybody, you know, to wear masks while they were indoors uh, at all the events. And, and uh, you know, for the most part, we didn't have any issues and people seemed genuinely, uh, you know, glad to participate and that wasn't much of a hang-up and yeah there was a whole bunch of people that had i would say kind of period appropriate masking hey steve i know that you nixed the idea of doing zoom conferences with uh celebrities like you know jane seymour etc but i i know that you have uh videos that jane seymour and director jeno zvark recorded for the convention so let's listen to those right now hi steve Hi, everyone. I wish I could be there with you today, and I'm sure it's going to be amazing. I'd love coming there. And as you know, the last time I came, I came with my family. We all got dressed up, and we'll never forget that. I, I just, uh, it, it's mind-boggling to me that that little movie could be so special and have such an enormous following. All I can say is I wish I was there with you, and maybe next year. Bonjour tout le monde. I want to wish you all a very happy set weekend and thank you for your loyalty and for your appreciation of the film. A bientôt, Janos Varc. Well, that, that was really nice of them to do. How was the weather? Actually, the weather was beautiful. Oh, I'm so jealous. October in Michigan can be snowy or it can be 70 degrees. And it really, it was like mid 60s. It was beautiful. I'm sure that everybody was talking about this podcast and how wonderful it is. As a matter of fact, John, we generated quite a bit of buzz. There was information included in the program about the uh, podcast. I had quite a few people ask me specifically because we put some site information in there so that they could, you know, visit and listen. Um, and they were pretty excited about the fact that you had put together some kind of weekend specific blurbs for people to listen to. No, oh, good. Yeah. I, we, that was kind of fun. And I, I, I saw a jump in the number of people listening. So that was, that was really great. Um, you know, you're in the middle of this podcast with Les Klinger, who's a noted Sherlockian, who is also a big fan of Richard Matheson and Somewhere in Time, the book and the movie. I have, I have always thought that there's a very cool intersection, a natural intersection, you know, if you did the Venn, the Venn diagrams, uh, between Sherlock Holmes fans and Somewhere in Time fans. I couldn't agree with you more. When I first got uh, involved with this weekend 30 years ago, I met Bill Shepard, who founded Insight, 
and started the weekend. And one of the first conversations that we had, we kind of veered off of somewhere in time and we both, you know, kind of fortuitously discovered that we each were huge Sherlock Holmes fans. One of the reasons for the the dual appeal there is that when you start to dig into it, there are just so many different paths you can go down to explore, to dig into history, to do a little bit of this kind of, you know, the, I call it time travel. Um, there's just, there's this infinite realm uh, that just keeps you interested the whole time. And there's all these adventures you can have. Absolutely agree. And I think that one of the things about Sherlock Holmes that, you know, continues to fascinate people, I think, um, is, you know, you've got this kind of thinking machine and, and we get to go and discover things along the way with him and, and all of the stuff kind of gets fed to you so that you can reach the same conclusions that, that Holmes does at the end, you know, in the Dana Ma, the story. And I think that a lot of those kinds of things got worked into somewhere in time, you know, Geno, the director of Geno Schwark has told me on several occasions that one of the concepts that he worked with when he was, you know, making the film was this, what he called circles in circles so that, you know, when the uh, character of Christopher Reeve, Richard Collier is, uh, you know, looking at this photograph and falls in love with this woman from 1912, we discover later in the film that that look that she's giving in the portrait is because she was looking at him standing just over the cameraman's shoulder. And before I let you go, you know, there's one more, uh, there's one more intersection here that I guess you have never explored, and I can't imagine why. And that is something I discovered on Instagram when I hashtag somewhere in time on some of my somewhere in time stuff. There's an Iron Maiden song called Somewhere in Time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. If if you do a Google search, that, that pops up pretty regularly. Right. Possibly even first. Yeah. I think that that would make a very interesting conversation, maybe next year at Grand Hotel. I, I'll tell you what. I'll invite you to come next year, and you can share that, that presentation. I will. Okay. And it probably would also be very good leaf-raking music on your iPod. <laughs> yeah. on, on your Walkman. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. There's a throwback. Well, it's uh, brother, it's been very good to talk with you, to kind of reconnect again. we got to remind ourselves that there are other people out in the world and that things are going to get back to normal. So thank you very much for being a touchstone. Absolutely. Hey, I'm more than happy to talk to you anytime you want. All right. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. All right, buddy. Bye. That was Steve Ellis, who organizes the Somewhere in Time weekend every year. Now let's get back to my conversation with Les Klinger. Have you ever been to Mackinac Island? No. The first thing you notice when you get off the boat is the smell of horse shit. <laughs> but for me, it's not an ugly smell. It's an incredibly uh, uh, rich smell that says, you know, that just puts you right on Mackinac Island. Oh, you're there again with the horses and the bicycles and the fudge. When I saw the movie, I assumed that it was all filmed at the Dell because I knew the book. And at the Hotel um, Del Coronado in San Diego. Yeah. Yes. And living here in Los Angeles, you know, I'm very familiar with the Dell, uh, have been there many times and, uh, and love the hotel. And so that was part of the appeal of the film. And it was sort of this great shock that, oh, well, I guess that wasn't the Dell. Uh, but the Dell has, by the way, as you, as I 
trust you know, it also has Sherlockian connections, uh, that uh, William Gillette, when writing his uh, famous play called Sherlock Holmes, uh, in which he starred for almost 30 years, uh, he wrote it uh, various places, but had it with him in a hotel in San Francisco. Uh, it burned, the, the hotel burned up when he wasn't there, and, the, and he lost uh, the play. And so he had to rewrite it, basically from a blank page and he did so at the dell that's pretty cool no the 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 uh the filmmakers were going to make it at the dell but they went down and looked at it and they saw there's electric lines there are condos that you can't get out of shots it's just not possible to do it at the hotel dell even though the book was set there so uh somebody had a book that had pictures of grand hotel and uh jeno zwark and uh then stephen deutsch now stephen simon they flew off to Mackinac in the middle of the winter and checked it out. And, and it became this, this cascade of serendipity. Oh, I like that. It became a cascade of serendipity. The hotel was perfect. The owner wasn't, didn't charge them anything, just said, put everything back. Wow. It was a great PR boom, boon for the hotel. Uh, it turned out that, I don't know if you know the group uh, MRA, Moral Rearmament, Sure. Who's, who's only surviving offshoot is up with people. They had one of their headquarters on Mackinac that included a full film studio. Wow. So all of the work could be done, in, like rushes, everything could be done on Mackinac instead of having to send it all back to, uh, back to Los Angeles. So the, the scenes that were shot in Chicago, they were shot in Chicago, but that's like five minutes worth. And then all the rest of it is actually shot right on Mackinac Island. Extras were used. Of course, they, they don't have any cars. They don't have to worry about that. There aren't any big phone lines. They don't have to worry about that stuff. It, it, it's just, it was just a magical cascade of serendipity. That's the last time I'll say that. Okay. Well, it's a lovely film. Um, and you know, it's, it's a romance, it's a fantasy. Um, and so notwithstanding my earlier comments about, uh, how I, I like time travel that gets down into the weeds, uh, so to speak, um, there's plenty of room for fantasies. I'm great and I'm very indulgent to fantasies. I love books like, I mean, films like Heaven Can Wait uh, the original Mr. Jordan, the original Heaven Can Wait uh, with Tanamichi. Those 1940s fantasy films, I, I, those, are, those are lovely. I love it in Somewhere in Time that it really is time travel. They, they, they give you the clues you need to not think it was just a dream or you know some sort of fantasy. We can actually say it's time travel. They just get that over with, and then you can sit back and enjoy the film. Although I guess, I mean, the book is a little more ambiguous about that. Yeah. Um, so. I th and I think the movie improves on it because it clarifies it. Just, yes. It, and, you get that out should of the way. Note, I mean, this was, you know, Matheson did both the book and the screenplay, although I'm sure that uh, he didn't get to do everything he wanted in the screenplay because that's not the nature of the industry. Yeah. His, his writing is sometimes a little old-fashioned, let's say, and sometimes politically incorrect. The opening scene that he wrote included like boob jokes you know there's a pdf of the screenplay available online so i printed it up i've got it right here it's like 130 pages or something it's worth looking at um somewhere in time formerly bid time return revised final draft by richard matheson based on his novel bid time return you go to the second page where uh, they have the dialogue from the opening scene where richard has just uh, debuted his play uh a busty girl comes up to Richard and hugs him passionately. Beverly, 
I loved it, Richard. Loved it. Date. Don't dent him, Beverly. Beverly, to Richard. You don't think I'm too forward, do you? Richard, glancing at her chest. You don't have much choice. Beverly titters. Give me a break. It's good we cut that out. Yeah. I asked you in an email whether you had any thoughts about nostalgia and longing. Nostalgia ain't what it used to be, John. I will get the entire, I will get the quote because I love it. You said, of course I have thoughts about nostalgia and longing. I'm a Sherlockian and a longtime science fiction reader since I was a wee pup, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, well, it's back to what I was saying before, that many Sherlockians indulge in a nostalgia of the heart for um, that lost period of 1895, which they, in their minds or hearts, they see it as a golden age. And that's what nostalgia does. I mean, it basically distorts, puts, uh, what's the camera trick? You put Vaseline on the lens, you know, to make it sort of blurry and uh, uh, erase some of the details that you don't really want to see. And that's what nostalgia is all about. And it's got its place, but every once in a while, it's nice to have a dose of reality. Uh, So, yes, do I love the idea of the Victorian age and the Edwardian time? Sure. I love the idea that reason was supreme, or at least that in people's hearts, they hoped that reason was supreme. They had great hopes for science. They had great hopes for rationality, uh, taking care of things. At the same time, they didn't think there was anything wrong with depriving women of the vote or treating people of color badly, etc. I mean, that... That was just sort of part of the white man's burden was to put up with women and these other people and and rule the world. You know, was it a better time? No. It was probably a far worse time than today. Uh, I always say that we have to understand that age because it was the birthplace of all of the revolutions of the 19th, of the 20th century. Um, The birthplace of, of technology taking over our world and the birthplace of women's rights, rights of people of color, education for all, and so on. That's not to say they came to fruition then. They didn't, but they got their start in that time. So we can be nostalgic for anything. I mean, uh, nostalgic, I'm sure there are people who are nostalgic for their time in prison, you know? It was just so easy. It was orderly. You could count on things. You, you, things went according to a schedule. There's a quote from Paul Auster that I asked you to look at. I don't know if you got a chance to think about it, let it percolate. Reach a certain moment in your life and you discover that your days are spent as much with the dead as they are with the living. Of course. I, I, I'm in the business of estate planning. So I, I'm constantly dealing with helping people plan for the eventuality of their own deaths or the deaths of their parents and so on. And in many cases, dealing with the fact that someone died and that they have to move on and now take care of things. And early on, my, my own parents are gone. They, um, uh, my mom has been gone now, wow, almost 30 years. Um, is it that long? No, it's about 25, I guess. And my dad is gone about 20. And yet they're always in our hearts. They're, I mean, I, I find myself reaching for the phone to call my mom and tell her something and, you still do? Um, yeah. That's just something oh, that's great. that, you know, I, I knew she'd want to know. She'd yeah. want to hear about it, whatever. 
So, I mean, I, I believe that. I think the older we get, the, the more experiences uh, we have, uh, and, and the people who we treasured um, have moved on in many cases. They, they're, they're dead, and so they're still with us. I, 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 but I think, the, I think the next part of that quote should really be, and I'm okay with that. I, I just, otherwise, you, are you really supposed to just jettison all of your memories, all of your thoughts with all of these great old people and all the experiences? I don't think so. I think, and so... I don't think so at yeah. all. I, I like to think of, I mean, it, this sounds deeply philosophical um, from a guy who is just a lawyer, <clears throat> but I think of life as this sort of great tapestry. And, you know, over here are sad parts, over here are good parts, over here are dull parts and so on but it's all part of the same tapestry and and we have to be able to look at it and remember that you, we don't we shouldn't be erasing dead people certainly we shouldn't be you know it's never forget them that's not the advice um it's remember the parts that that all the good parts all the bad parts remember who they were and see where they fit into the tapestry of your life that's really beautiful i've never heard anybody express it that way thank you Les, you're a softy. I am. Just because I'm a lawyer. Hey, you know, I, I can't claim that I've experienced terrible personal grief. Um, my parents were old when they died. My dad was 90. My mom was in her late 80s. I've never lost anybody inappropriate time. Haven't lost a child. Haven't lost a spouse. I'm not sure I could be as philosophical about that and sort of see it for what it is, which is just sort of that another part of the tapestry. But it's a nice thought. I hope I don't have to find out. Where would you go if you could time travel? Oh, wow. Can I push a button and come back to the present? Sure. Part of me wonders how I would have responded to some of the eras of our of our history that were sort of more heroic. And it sounds crazy to say things like, I would be interested to be in London in the Blitz. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over London. At the moment, everything is quiet. I would be interested to, to experience some of the parts of World War II and so on, and, and sort of test myself. The lights are swinging over in this general direction now. You'll hear two explosions. Just there they are. Moving still just a little closer. There you heard two. The plane is still very high, and it's quite clear that he's not coming in for his bombing run. Just overhead now, the burst of the anti-aircraft fire. Now you'll hear two bursts a little nearer in a moment. There they are. That hard, stony sound. I was in the Army Reserves during the Vietnam War, and very glad I didn't go to Vietnam. But now I wonder, how would I have behaved in combat, how would I behaved in those experiences where people were called on to do extraordinary things that were just ordinary people? That would interest me more than any particular historical moment. From what I know about uh, the past, you know, they seem to me to be fraught with problems. <laughs> That's the problem. Being too much a student of history is, yeah, there's some good parts. Sure. Would I like to go sit with Percy and Mary and talk about Frankenstein and meet Byron and that sort of thing. Yeah, that'd be fun. Right up until I found out there weren't any such things as bathrooms, you know? That'd be a great footnote in your annotation, though. Personal interview. Yes. (laughs) 
I think, are there any other questions I should ask you? We're, we're nearing our time. Uh, I think we've, we've wandered far and near. Les, thank you so much. I hope, did you actually enjoy this? Was it okay? It was great, John. I'm sure you'll edit it down to about three minutes, and I'll be interested to see which three minutes. No, so. no, these are... So the beauty of this is that digression is welcome. This is all about just talking about nostalgia and memory and loss and, and all this stuff allows... It, it requires digression. Okay. Well, I certainly did digress. That's Sherlockian and somewhere in timeian. Is that a word? Les Klinger. And you can get links to all of his stuff, the books and the podcasts, and everything Les Klinger-esque at callbackyesterday.com. Call Back Yesterday is produced, written, recorded, and directed by John Raby. That's me. Our theme music is performed by The Van Dyke Parks, and our logo was made by Michael Eulencott. Special help today from Julian Bermudez and Brian Took. Hey, you got your Deerstalker in my pocket watch. Well, you got your pocket watch in my Deerstalker. Um, hey, you got your Deerstalker in my pocket watch. Well, you got your pocket watch in my Deerstalker. Hey! You got your Deerstalker in my pocket watch. Well, you got your pocket watch in my Deerstalker. Additional support from Bermuda's Projects in Los Angeles. Join me soon for the next episode of Call Back Yesterday. And I mean it. The next one's coming out soon. Thanks for listening. Here's a reread for you, John. Well, you got your pocket watch in my Deerstalker. Well, you... Got your pocket watch in my deer stalker. Well, you got your pocket watch in my deer stalker. Well, you got your pocket watch in my deer stalker. Well, you got your pocket watch in my deer stalker. Well, you got your pocket watch in my deer stalker. Well, you got your pocket watch in my deer stalker. Yay! Thank you.